Good afternoon. This is Life Transitions. First Source Bank is proud to support Life Transitions. We know that the only constant in life is change. Whatever stage in life you are, contact us to learn how we can help make the most of it. First Source Bank, member FDIC. Good morning, everyone out there in our lovely lower county area. Uh, This is Carrie Crosby from the Elder Care Alliance, and we are here today with Tim Hunt and Tamara Pollan, who both are from First Source Bank. And we're going to go ahead and get started because we've got lots of information to share. So Tim and Tamara, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Carrie. Uh, Tim Hunt, First Source Bank. Uh, I've been with First Source now for about three and a half years and uh, been in business for about 31 years uh, doing various types of trust administration, operations, closely held business. And so we're happy to be here with you today. Uh, I have a master's in finance, also a certified trust financial advisor. Good afternoon. Uh, My name is uh, Tamara Pollan. Happy to be here today. Um, I am a trust officer as well. Um, I am in the St. Joseph market, however. Um, and I'm thrilled to be here. Um, recently relocated from the Chicagoland area about a year and a half ago and just absolutely love uh, the lack of traffic here. We live <laughs> in St. Joe, my husband, and we've got two young daughters. I am a graduate of Hillsdale College in Michigan and I have my uh, Juris Doctorate from the John Marshall Law School. Prior to relocating uh, and transitioning over to a trust officer, I practiced law for about 10 years and so happy to to be here and to share some information well fantastic we got lots of experience in lots of degrees sitting around this table and that always translates into lots of knowledge to be shared a lot of times particularly when we're talking about finance and I think that uh, this is definitely a topic that we know we get a lot of questions on across the board if it's uh, someone who's trying to figure out how they can uh, make the most of their finances in the future, if it's someone that's just starting out and wanting to know where best to start, or if it's someone who's retiring and wants to know where they need to start moving things to and and who we put on accounts, we get these questions all the time. So since I've um, mentioned we have quite a bit of information, let's go ahead and just get started. So the first question I do have for you is who needs estate planning documents? Tamara and I are here, but we're not able to practice law, even though Tamara's a JD. Uh, we're also not offered, uh, able to give investment or tax advice. And so you still have to work with your local attorneys and sure. CPAs, tax advisors. But getting back to that question, who needs uh, you know, a will and trust and why? Really, a, a will, anybody that's over age 18 really should be thinking about having basic estate planning uh, and having basic documents drawn up. And that's really just because at 18, they are eligible uh, and legally uh, to hold assets. Okay. And so parents lose then control on, on essentially where those assets might go if they had an untimely demise. And so anybody 18 or over really needs to think about that. We'll get into some ways, too, of titling assets, and that'll be coming throughout this plan. But those are the individuals that have to think about that uh, because they can own their own property, and also they they might end up receiving gifts from grandparents. There can be a lot of things that come about that we don't necessarily entertain. And so as a parent with young children myself that are coming of that age, you know, something that even I have to think about. Well, and that makes sense because, honestly, you know, as we're readying our kids to go off to college and things like that, we're not necessarily assuming we need to do estate planning for them. But it makes sense if they can own property and they've got assets past the age of 18, that obviously needs to be delineated somehow in the event of 
something terrible happening at that young age, but it's always best to have those things in place. Yeah, and that goes along with, you know, they'd want a power of attorney and, you know, essentially the finance and health care type powers of attorney so that if something, if they became incapacitated, somebody could stand in their place. Right, and again, not things we like to think about. Conversations we generally have in our adult years as we're parenting to our parents and, and understanding we've got to have those documents in place for ourselves since we have children, but we don't really think about it going all the way down to age 18. So that's actually a very excellent point for any of our listeners out there to start getting that planned um, around the age of 18 and forward. How often should these estate plans then be reviewed, basically? Yeah, Gary, that's a, a really good question. Um, you know, Typically, we would advise that the estate plan documents be reviewed by you know a competent uh, estate planning attorney every three to five years. It's just kind of a general rule of thumb. However, of course, there's a caveat. If the individual has some sort of a major life event, that could be a new marriage. It could be a divorce. It could be a death or birth of anyone in, named in the documents or impacted by those documents. In that case, you know, don't wait for the three or five years to elapse. Those documents then need to be reviewed you know, as quickly as possible after that life event. Um, another thing that we've seen recently that, that has, you know, triggered a need for review is, are changes in the tax laws. Mm-hmm. They're constantly changing, but <laughs> recently we've had kind of some major changes with the estate tax exemption. So from 2001 to 2019, we've gone from an exemption of 675000 up to $11.4 million That's a huge per difference. individual. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. So that dramatically changes the landscape for a lot of people. So what we have seen is many couples have had, you know, kind of an AB trust set up. That's where essentially each spouse has their own trust so that they can each use the exemption. It's not really needed for most people these days. Because of that combined amount now. Exactly. Of what the amount is. Okay. Exactly. And who is it that, who are you going to, to actually have these things reviewed? Who's going to review this for you? Well, that would be typically your attorney. So mm-hmm. as we get these um, wills and powers of attorney outlined, then we would revisit our attorney uh, who drew up these documents for us to kind of make sure that all these changes are in place and that we're in the most effective stream of planning that we need to be. Absolutely. Basically. And okay. one thing that we see too, and that Tamara and I both do, is, is that oftentimes um, our services, we're here to serve. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just to give general you know, conversation and, and to review off and look at clients' documents. Mm-hmm. And we like to start that oftentimes by saying, what do you think your document does? And so sometimes, folks, if you're out there and you're not sure, wow, I'm not sure exactly what my document says. Mm-hmm. You know, when we did this, it was 10 years ago. It's been a long time since I dusted it off we can at least help look through it and say, well, this is kind of what your document states. You know, this is right. the way, if we were called to try to administer this as it is, mm-hmm. here's what this would tell us to okay. do. Okay, that's helpful. And that's often a good starting point because it can save sometimes dollars going to an attorney, sure. CPA, that's going to have to charge hourly. And you have a good starting point. So again, we can't practice law, but we can help look at it and say, this is what it would mean. Here's how we interpret this. Mm-hmm. And, and that we are allowed to absolutely do. So sometimes we're a good sounding board before mm-hmm. you go to meet with counsel or a CPA. And I think that that's, you know, good advice, honestly, because many of our listeners may not have the opportunity to seek out an attorney every time that they need to review a document, basically. So obviously, if they came to your offices and you sat down with them and you said, 
here's the way we would see it. Is that still the way you would like it to occur? If the answer is no, then they would obviously need to seek counsel in order to change that information. If the answer is, yeah, that still looks great, then we're good. It's basically yeah. been reviewed exactly. for the most part. Okay, mm -hmm. very good. So what is the difference between a trust and a will? There's a lot of differences really between a trust and a will, but really one of the most common differences is, is that a will is public. And so when somebody passes and they're going to file through probate for their last will and testament, that becomes public knowledge. Mm -hmm. Anybody that uh, had knowledge of that individual's passing would be able to go to court generally and, and be able to pull up records and to see what that estate was comprised of and where assets were going, who was getting what. Uh, and that's from a will. That's from a will. Okay. A trust is a very private document. Okay. And that's not subject generally to public disclosure. Uh, it may be filed just on record with the court, but it's not open to review. Okay. Um, some of the other big differences are is, is that really with uh, will and trust, you know, we see different types of estate plans. But with a will, you're also going to be generally operating with the power of attorney. And that's fine. You can name an individual as power of attorney or uh, sometimes some institutions, but generally it's an individual, a close relative, a friend that's going to act as power of attorney. But not all institutions recognize power of attorneys, um, and especially if they're a couple years old. And mm -hmm. the reason institutions get nervous about that is, is because power of attorneys are revocable. And sure. so they have no idea to know whether they're working with the most recent mm -hmm. document. Mm -hmm. That, you know, contrasts a little bit compared to a trust document where generally, not even generally, there's going to be a drafting attorney that's involved. And so even if a practitioner or an institution was unsure whether that's really the most current trust document, they have somebody to reach out to that can confirm and give them a certificate of trust that it's in existence, that they do have the most full force inversion. Uh, and so there's a little bit more security with that. The other real kind of big advantage sometimes can be to a trust is, is that you have named trustees and you have succession of, of trustees. And if you have assets correctly titled in your trust, if you become incapacitated, it's already uh, known then for the trustee. They can stand in. They know where the assets are. They're generally warehoused in the trust document, oftentimes in one location, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with a particular practitioner or institution. And it just serves then that you can step right in to oversee their needs mm -hmm. financially. Whereas a power of attorney uh, may not have that same knowledge. Now, if it's a close family member, perhaps, but mm -hmm. assets oftentimes are scattered. Mm -hmm. You might have CDs at different institutions. You might have different brokerage accounts. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when you do a trust, one of the things oftentimes you'll do is you'll consolidate your assets into your trust name and perhaps with one custodian. Mm -hmm. uh, and so sometimes it can just really simplify things. But it does provide somebody to stand in place and um, be able to manage your finances a little bit clearer. So. And I think it's important to note, too, that the trust is designed to operate without court involvement, which is, is important. Again, that goes to the privacy issue, but also the cost issue. Mm -hmm. you know, you're not paying to, to, to take it mm -hmm. right through the mm -hmm. court process, or you're not waiting for the delay either. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, um, what you're guaranteed with a will yeah. and also with a, a power of attorney. If it's d not mm -hmm. honored by the financial institution, you're mm -hmm. going to find yourself in a guardianship proceeding to have someone appointed by the court right. to step in and, and, and handle that individual's finances. Is that even possible after a person's death? The power of attorney actually only operates during life. So then would they need to seek guardianship? If, if this person passed away and institutions were not 
allowing the power of attorney to get information or get the money or whatever, would that there would there then need to be a guardianship hearing on someone who's passed? Not yeah. in that case. The guardianship okay. with somebody that's passed, yeah. you know, generally it's not going to apply. I wouldn't think so. Right. So what happens there is through the probate. Then it would go into probate. You get okay. letters of authority to act under that last will and testament. Okay. Right. So, you know, whoever It takes called, the time, you're in court, right. you're doing that process. So that's an interesting differentiation, again, something I didn't know. So trusts are often t- are done by attorneys and um, filed, things are consolidated. There is an appointed person to manage all of the uh, fiduciary responsibilities in the end. Uh, whereas a power of attorney and will, you may not have as much power uh, to do so. Again, we deal with um, mixed listeners who have the financial ability to seek an attorney to apply for a trust and do all of that. And then we have folks that you know have wills and powers of attorney. But if you can afford to get to an attorney to get a trust done, it may certainly ensure that what you want done with your money is in fact done with your money. Um, but obviously, if if you don't have the money to do that, you still need to do what you can do to get your will. We know oftentimes people are going on the internet, they're pulling a, a document per state, not always what everyone would like you to do. Um, however, it is a legal document if you go through the process and file it the way you're supposed to. So you do have kind of your mixed boundaries between the two and obviously one is more expensive than the other if i can interject yeah uh, any uh, assistance with that or any thoughts about that for folks out there yeah with regard to the cost one thing to keep in mind is that most estate planning attorneys will draft your documents for a flat fee okay so that's kind of nice a lot of times too they will meet with you for an initial consultation without charge okay They'll be able to, you know, answer some basic questions, tell you kind of what they think you need, mm-hmm. and then give you a figure of what you can expect it to cost, which is really nice for budgeting and, and just sure. knowing what you're getting into. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there really isn't too much difference in the cost between preparing last will and testament and or uh, including full-blown trust documents. Mm-hmm. Even understand that when you do... Uh, you have an attorney draft a trust document for you, it will still include a last will and testament, Mm -hmm. which will essentially call that a pour over will. And that last will and testament will essentially say that anything that doesn't, that escapes outside Mm -hmm. of my trust, will pour over into my trust dated such and such. Mm -hmm. And they do that because oftentimes, all of us, we might go out and buy an asset and we forget to title it in our trust name, uh, those type of issues. So it's meant to be kind of a catch-all basket. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of the attorneys are going to do that. They're also going to give you medical powers and uh, so forth. And so it's an all-encompassing package, and there really isn't that big of a difference. It's just depending on... You, you know what your wishes are because there's nothing you can't achieve with the last will and testament that you can with a trust or vice versa mm-hmm. it's just a matter of the privacy sure. and the ease potentially of administration yes and for the things to just move forward as they're supposed right. to that's very interesting information for everyone out there so encourage you to make a few phone calls if this is something that you're interested in looking into um look up a couple of estate planning attorneys and and see what you come up with. So don't be afraid to make those phone calls. All right. Very good. Thank you for explaining that um, a little more clearer for I. So can't I just add my child's name to a checking account and kind of call it done? A lot of people think that that they can and a lot of people do. What they often don't realize that is that in doing so, you're actually effectuating a gift of half the account to that child. Um, And in addition, uh, at your death, the entire balance in that account automatically passes to that child. So, you know, most of the time, 
when someone adds a child to the account, they're not intending to gift it. They just are doing it for basically an estate planning purpose. Mm -hmm. um, by making a gift, though, you may need to file a gift tax return depending on the value of the account. Um, and the child may also be responsible for paying um, income taxes on that account since they are now an owner on the account. Another important thing to keep in mind is that account now becomes subject to that child's creditors, or if that child uh, gets divorced, that account can mm. be counted as an asset that's available for distribution in his uh, or her divorce. Also, something I like to warn people about is if that child gets into trouble, or if there's you know a substance abuse abuse issue, excuse me, something like that, the child has the ability to take everything mm -hmm. out of that mm -hmm. account, and mm -hmm. there's really no recourse because you've you've put them on that account. So you know, as Tim was alluding to earlier, the the preference really in almost all situations is to retitle the account in the name of the living trust mm -hmm. um, and, and handle it that way as opposed to just adding a, a, a child or, or friend uh, to the account. So we've all been told somewhere along the lines that you can do checking accounts adding a person in two different ways. You can do the and or you can do the or which my understanding, and I, I could be very well wrong, and I'd like to know if I am, um, that there was supposedly a difference in between that. And that kind of maybe alleviated some of these issues that we thought it did. And some of the institutions will look at the and that has to need both signatures, mm -hmm. where the or can be one or the other. Mm -hmm. And so different institutions will look at it a little bit differently, and sometimes they have their own policies of what they will even accept or not accept mm -hmm. and how they will title accounts. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, you know, to, to back up to what Tamara was referring to, too, is you need to be aware, too, of some of the tax effects. Sometimes individuals mm -hmm. will take an IRA, and I can speak to this personally because I know that my mother said, oh, yeah, the estate plan is going to be real simple. I put, you know, your sister on the checking account, and mm -hmm. I named you as the one to receive the IRA. But when you guys get that money, I just expect you to split it up amongst yourselves <laughs> right. evenly. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, thanks, Mom. I said, but you know, I understand that that IRA is fully taxable mm -hmm. as ordinary income, meaning that I'm going to get that whole income tax burden, mm -hmm. but you want me, you know, and then I'm supposed to share that equally. Mm -hmm. I said, that's going to be difficult, because mm -hmm. how do I hand over half of that tax bill to Ann when it wasn't assigned to her? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, my sister's name but mm -hmm. in any event you know you have to be very careful so mm -hmm. with some of that that's not necessarily the best choice if you want to split it evenly mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. there's the correct way to really do that is just to name us uh, explicitly is 50 50 mm -hmm. on the beneficiary designation of that ira mm -hmm. and you know again and be careful even on just joint checking accounts and so sure. forth because you might have tax consequences you weren't intended that's interesting again information i did not know wow i'm learning all kinds of stuff today all right so we covered everything with that looks like it um okay so once i sign my estate plan documents in my attorney's office then i'm all done is that you true? Know, you know, this is one that uh, Tamara and I were both smirking, if you could see us. But the, the reason is, is because oftentimes what people think, right? You know, they, they've gone through this long-winded process with mm -hmm. the attorneys. They've drafted the documents. And no, you're not completely done. Because then what you actually have to do is you have to follow through and retitle your assets. Mm -hmm. And so with homes, that can mean doing, doing quick claim deeds mm -hmm. to get it over into your new trust name. Because just because you have a trust, if it's not titled in the trust, it's not part of your trust. Right. Then it actually does become part of potentially going through probate. Mm -hmm. And you have to go through probate proceedings. There's some additional costs, as Tamara mentioned, potentially mm -hmm. some delays. So, no. Uh, attorneys generally do a really, really good job at giving a letter of instruction. 
But what attorneys don't do is they don't follow up and they don't right. make sure necessarily that you actually retitled the mm-hmm. assets. Mm-hmm. They leave that up to the individuals. Sure. And so, again, that's where we can help as a corporate trustee here at First Source and any other other institutions can probably as well. But we're willing to take a look at that and try to help make sure you get the assets retitled correctly. Okay. Um, and that is very, very important and really to follow that letter of instructions that the attorneys give you. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that's just an invaluable resource, really, because as you know, anything legal, if you're not really trained in how to manage all of that, that can kind of get kind of bogging down with all the details that you have to do. So, uh, you know, sometimes, as we know, things can be very confusing for those who are not at used, you know, used to at all any of these processes. And so it's good to know that they've got someone that they can go to and say, okay, so I know I got to do my house and I got to figure out how to do that. But what else do I need to do? Because reading through some of that can be complicated. You don't really know what words mean. You don't know what it, what trust is. You know, you're kind of stuck up in the air with trying to figure out all these terms if you're not an attorney. So that's great that that service is out there for them to come on in. So again, we encourage you to call any of your local branches, reach out to them, let them know what it is that you're looking for, and they will put you in touch with one of these fine folks or someone else in the company that does the same thing. Terry, one other follow-up comment relative to that. You know, generally speaking, everything except for personal property and vehicles would go into a trust name. Yeah, oftentimes don't want your personal property or vehicles, and that's for liability-type reasons that you wouldn't put that into a trust name. Those would generally pass outside, and you'd either try to do it so that it's payable on death to somebody or what have right. you. Would. And another important thing to note, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that just by putting an asset in the name of your trust, you don't lose control. If you're mm-hmm. the trustee, you know, typically that's called a living trust mm-hmm. um, or more technically a, a revocable trust, meaning mm-hmm. you can change it or revoke it. You are the trustee. You still have control of those assets. You can still spend them, give them away, do with them as you please. It's just just your statement or whatever your your deed to your house is going to say, you know, Joan Smith trustee of the Joan Smith Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still reported under your social security number while you're alive. So it's really just, um, it's not as big a deal. Um, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't affect your day-to-day operations. Right. It doesn't, you're not giving these things away to these folks right now. You are entrusting that upon your death that they will do what they need to do with all of your assets outlined as the attorney has outlined it all for you. So exactly. that's a very good point to make as well. What should I choose or who should I choose? Actually, this is an interesting question on who I should choose as my trustee, my personal representative. I mean, I think you must get questions on this constantly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and so there's there, there are kind of two roles, trustee and the personal representative. The trustee is the individual that is going to carry out the terms of your trust mm-hmm. after you know, you're know you no longer able to, and the personal representative is the individual named in the will who's going to carry out the terms of the will. If you have both a trust and a will, typically that will be one and the same. Mm-hmm. You, you'll, you'll name the same individual uh, for both of those roles. Um, and of course, you've got several options. You can name a family member or a trusted friend to fill those roles. My personal opinion is that it should generally be someone from a generation younger than you. Mm -hmm. There's a greater likelihood that they'll be around Mm -hmm. uh, and able to uh, fulfill those duties when when they're called upon. But really make sure that that person that you choose is financially savvy and has the time Mm -hmm. uh, to handle all the work involved. Um, There are going to be accountings and inventory, tax returns, potentially a probate proceeding in court. So this is not something, you know, to be taken lightly. And I would recommend, too, that you name at least one successor because you never know when 
um, mm-hmm. something's going to happen and that individual is going to be called upon, you don't know what the circumstances will be. Mm-hmm. So if you've got someone kind of a second in line, you know your documents are going to last you a while. Alternatively, if you don't have someone, you know, that you think is, is up to that task, you know, there is the option of naming a corporate fiduciary like us. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the benefit uh, to that, of course, is that, you know, you've got the trained professionals um, mm-hmm. in a state administration and trust administration. We have systems in place to handle all the reportings. Um, we're up to date on all the changes in, in the law and, and things like that. And we're also insured and you don't have that successor issue. Um, you know, you know that the institution is still going to be there even if, you know, the person is, is not. So okay. kind of the, the two ways that you can go there. Well, and, you know, that gives you a few options on trying to figure out, you know, do you want to name the oldest? Do you want to name the most responsible? Do you want to name your younger sister? You know, all of those questions. I mean, if that really just isn't something that you can say definitively who it is that you want, then obviously having a corporate fiduciary manage that is is better to have in place than nothing. So always consider the fact that if there isn't someone you would either want to settle with that responsibility or that you feel you could there is an option for corporate as well. What well, we see frequently too, and you have to be careful of when you name an individual, is and it's your child, is it can create family rifts. Right, exactly. Uh, because you know you have somebody trying to direct, and other children might not like that. So you have to give that consideration, look amongst your family, and be honest. Mm-hmm. And then also the corporate fiduciary, if you do go that route, another advantage is they have very deep pockets. You know, as Tamara mentioned, they're insured, but they also have the ability for if a mistake is made, mm-hmm. they can make it right. Right. An individual may not have that. Exactly. So, so what, what exactly would be um, the trustees' roles and duties? And we've had so much information, we're coming close to our end here, but let's see if we can get that information out there. You know, the primary duties that a trustee or a fiduciary has is they have the du- uh, duty of impartiality, duty to report, mm-hmm. duty to invest, uh, duty to keep people informed. And they do that through providing statements, keeping track of the stuff on the systems. Now, again, a corporate trustee has that readily available, uh, an individual trustee, is probably going to have to hire somebody to, to help with some of that. So those are the primary duties, really, that, that a trustee is really going to be providing. Okay. And, you know, value the assets, sell assets, buy assets. You know, there's a lot of interaction that goes on in the administration, and especially when you start looking at an estate. And a trustee, if you did name, you know, a family member or a trusted uh, close family friend, would have someone that they could talk to to go through with this correctly? I mean, I'm assuming if you did have an attorney that they could help that person manage through those steps that they'd have to take to properly buy, sell, report, and all of that? Yeah, typically the the trustee, if it's an individual, will retain an attorney to represent them as trustee. Okay, good. And again, obviously, if we choose corporate, you have all of those systems available for you to kind of pull from and make sure you get that all done correctly. All right. So I want to get to, I want to get first of all to the corporate charge for the services. You know, I really want to make sure that we say that because I think people are going to ask that question. You know, typically corporate trustees charge on tiered and and, uh, market-based type rate, and it's generally based on a percentage of the assets. And so, you know, like the prior estate fees, uh, we charge 4% on the first 250,000, 3% on the next 250, 2% on the next 500,000, and 1% on anything over a million. For just regular trust services where we're not selling and settling an estate, all the valuations and things that have to happen in an estate, it's a little bit less expensive, obviously. And so for there, we're generally at about 0.95%. 
Okay. Give me a phone number that people can call so that they can start this process with your bank. Sure, you can get me at uh, 269-982-2845. And I can be reached at 269-687-6808. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tim and Tamara, for being here from First Source Bank. Brought to you by First Source Bank. Whether you're starting a new job, starting a family, or deciding how to spend your retirement years, contact a life transition specialist to help you. First Source Bank, member FDIC.